Good morning. Good to see all of you. I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. I want us to pick up the reading in verse 15. Revelation 11 and verse 15. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your saints, the prophets and saints, excuse me, your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let us pray. As we read here, so we pray also. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. You are worthy of all of our thanksgiving for that. And we especially now thank you for your word as we turn our attention to it, shape our hearts and our minds by it, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. There was a man who was on a, a bus, a very crowded bus. He was uh, seated in the seat, and at the next stop, a, a woman got on. There was no place for her to sit, and so the man stood up, offered her his seat, and she sat down and immediately fainted. And when she came to, she explained that uh, she fainted because she was surprised that anyone would offer her a seat. And she thanked the man, and immediately he fainted. And when he came to, he explained that he fainted because he was surprised anybody thanked him. We, and I think we're right, in thinking poorly of ingratitude. It is, we've been working through the book of Ephesians, and we've been talking about those uh, commonly tolerated sins. And we do tolerate it, but we think poorly about ingratitude. You hold a door open for someone, and they just rush right in without so much as a thank you, right? We think poorly of that. 
And I say to you, my brothers, my sisters, my friends, those listening online, God has reason to think poorly about us for our ingratitude. He creates a world, brings us into it, in which we live, move, and have our being. He sees to it and provides for us all of the many blessings that we have. The food in our stomachs, the clothing on our back, the house, the checking account, the vehicles, all of it. How often do we give Him thanks for that? Probably far less often than we ought to. And then there are all those unseen blessings that we, we don't even think about. And, and, and therefore, we don't give thanks for them. God has right to think poorly about us because of our ingratitude. But thanks be to God that in Christ Jesus, all of those sins of ingratitude don't touch our record because they've been covered by the blood of Christ. Revelation seems like an odd place to have a Thanksgiving sermon from, doesn't it? And by the way, it's the Revelation, not Revelations. You see this in movies all the time, the book of Revelations, right? No, it's not Revelations, plural, it's just a single Revelation, through and through. The Revelation that was made known to John. But the book of Revelation is a book of thanksgiving. And actually, the, the, revela the, the thanksgiving in the book of Revelation starts way back in chapter 4. We'll eventually land in chapter 11, but chapter 4. John has been called up to a place where even the angels fear to tread. He is given a glimpse, a vision, a revelation of the throne room of God. And what he sees, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, he sees these four living creatures. Their description is back in verse 7. It is a, these are terrifying angelic beings. But the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, I believe... And I think this is accurate because there's a connection here back to Isaiah chapter 6 that perhaps these four living creatures are those same living creatures that Isaiah saw, the seraphim, who had six wings as well. And in Isaiah's vision, they, two wings cover their face and two wings cover their feet. Uh, and the idea there is that the vision of God is so holy that even these angelic beings have to cover their eyes. And the 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 place is so sacred that they have to cover their feet as if to cover their tracks, that they shouldn't even be here. And with two wings, they fly around. And in Isaiah, they cry out, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, excuse me, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, God of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. Here, these four living creatures, day and night, they never cease. They don't require sleep. And so, they just are perpetually saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, is, and is to come. But notice verse 9. Ready? And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks 
to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. In other words, they're worshiping God, at least in chapter 4, as creator. Chapter 5, they're going to worship him as redeemer. But it's that ninth verse there that I want to draw our attention to. These four living creatures give thanks. They give thanks to the eternal God as holy, holy, holy. They give thanks to him. It's, it's fascinating. These four living creatures who have only ever dwelt in the glorious presence of God, in a pure, undefiled heaven. They themselves are pure and holy and undefiled. They are untouched by sin. Heaven untouched by sin. These creatures untouched by sin. And yet, they are giving thanks to God. It is, it's an impressive scene. In the perfection of heaven... And these unfallen holy creatures, they thank God for what? May I suggest they give thanks just for the mere pleasure of existing in the very presence of holy God. You see, there's something about being close to the throne, because that's where they are. They always dwell there. They're always in the presence of holy God as He sits on His throne. There's something about as the closer you get to the throne, the more aware you are of your own creatureliness. That I exist at the mere pleasure of God. And so, as a result of being aware of their own creatureliness and the sheer greatness of the holy, 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 these creatures are holy. But not God is altogether other in His holiness. Holiness to the max and beyond. These creatures, aware of their creatureliness, they thank their Maker. You see, in heaven, they thank Him. How much more? How much more? We creatures who, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we live, move, and have our being in this world. God at work continually blessing us. The sun came up today. The rain came yesterday. And He continually blesses us with things we don't even deserve. And especially, well, we're going to deal with that in just a moment when we get to chapter 7 of Revelation. He's blessed us with the most fantastic blessing of all, which is salvation in Christ Jesus. How much more should we, creatures of dust, thank Him? If they thank Him in heaven, how much more we on earth? Come with me to chapter 7 of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. The context for chapter 7 begins in chapter 6. Seals have been opened. 
Seal one, two, three, four, five, six have all been opened. The seventh seal, not yet. Not yet. But as these seals are being opened, chapter 7 begins with a sealing. Uh, as as 144,000 are sealed on earth. And the 144,000 are from uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And I believe this is highly figurative, prophetic language to uh, talk about the martyrs, uh, the, the Christian martyrs who are going to give their life, they're going to lay their life down, uh, and indeed it will be taken from them by a very vicious persecution campaign by the Roman Empire. But after this, verse 9 begins, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Typical language here to equate he who sits on the throne with the Lamb. That is, he who sits on the throne is God, and the Lamb also likewise is God. And, and you get a lot of this in the Revelation. But the 144,000, here are the, the martyred saints. There's a, a precise number, and there will be no more after that, and then God comes in judgment uh, upon the persecuting power, uh, the Roman Empire. But now the, the, the image shifts, and, and once again, we have a throne room scene. And this innumerable number of people stand before the throne. This here, if, if the 144,000 are the Christian martyrs who are going to die, the innumerable multitude before the throne are all of the saints of God across the ages. And they are before, and it's, it's interesting also, they are from every nation. They are from all tribes and peoples and languages. It seems as though ethnicity is retained even in glory, which is a, a fascinating thing. The diversity of God's people. That's what John sees. People from all ethnic groups, and they, they may come from all these different languages, and yet they all are united in their focus on He who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And they are, they are crying out, they're shouting about the salvation of God and how salvation is not of us. It is not because of who we are or how smart we are or we're so much more spiritual. The only thing that we contributed to our salvation was our need for salvation because of sin. Salvation belongs to God. It's His enterprise, all of it. He's the one who is the author and He's the perfecter of salvation. He's the Alpha and the Omega of salvation. And so, no wonder it belongs to Him. It's all His. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. Now, notice verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne. That's, that's an appropriate position when you're in the, the glorious holy presence of God. But notice, they worship God saying, verse 12, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and 
thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. Amen. Again, angelic beings here, angels, but also the elders, the 24 elders are there. And then also the four living creatures. And I'm sure also involved in this is that innumerable multitude. Again, in heaven, they thank Him. They are thanking Him for salvation. Thanksgiving, by the way, a communal thing. It's what we do, and it's a public thing. right? There, there's no hiding it. Uh, all of God's holy creatures unite around the throne, and they give Him thanks. Why? Because He's worthy of it. I think there's also, uh, since Thanksgiving is a communal thing, why would it be communal? It's because our God exists as three persons eternally. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as a community, the community in heaven likewise blesses and thanks uh, the eternal God. And so they, they thank Him. Heaven, I want to say this also, heaven is a place of thanksgiving. Those four living creatures, they thank Him because they, get, they exist and they get to exist in the pure and holy presence of the, the holy God. But then also all of God's holy creatures unite and here they are giving thanks to God for His salvation. God is a saving God. How does He save? We know all about how God left the glory of heaven. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus, enters into His own creation, takes on flesh, dwells among us. He is God with us, lives a sinless life that we could never live, goes to the cross and dies on the cross in our place for our sins. He's buried. Three days later, He's raised by the power of God to the glory of the Father, and has ascended back to the Father's right hand where He lives and rules forevermore. It is in the cross that God is saving people as Christ sheds His blood for the redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. This is God saving His people. All these people from every tribe, nation, people, language group, they are there only because of what God has done in Christ. And through the cross. And so in heaven they thank Him for, his, for salvation. For the salvation that He provides to His people. They thank Him for, no doubt, His grace. You've been saved by grace through faith. And the salvation of God comes to us by His grace. Christ is gracious to us as well. But they also thank us, uh, excuse me, they thank God for the blood that was shed. Notice, they were clothed, back in verse 9, in white robes. Hmm. And so, in, in verse 13, one of the elders addressed me. Can you imagine this? Here you are, right? This is John in the throne room of God, and he's approached by one of the 24 elders. He said, and, and this guy's asking, who are these? Right? Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, all right? And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
those white robes, that no doubt once they were stained because of sin. And now, having, having been washed in the blood of the Lamb, all that sin washed away. All those stains gone. No wonder they thank Him. He did what they could not do. They stood accused by the evil one. And now the case has been dismissed because Christ shed His blood. And so the blood of the Lamb, He's the one who makes it possible that these dressed in white robes, why they can even be in the throne room of God, is because of Jesus. And so they thank Him for salvation. How much much more we, right? We who, likewise, we know we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. God has been gracious to us. He has saved us. Saved to the uttermost in Christ Jesus. We have cause for thanksgiving as well. And so we do. We thank Him because He has saved us. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8. Remember, all those seals had been opened except for one. And that's when the Lamb opens the last seal, the seventh seal, the final seal. And when He does, notice this, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Remember, they'd been shouting, crying out about salvation and giving thanks and blessing and all this. And then in all of the cacophony of noise and worship and thanksgiving, the Lamb opens the seventh seal and... Silence. Ooh. Wow. Because with the opening of the seventh seal come seven trumpets. And while the seven seals were judgment, the seven trumpets are likewise judgment. And and the trumpets begin to blow, one after the other, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 8. And they go all the way through uh, into chapter 9. Chapter 10, there's this vision of an angel that has a scroll. Chapter 11 begins with this vision of Jerusalem. And here's the thing. I hate, I hate to just breeze right through all this because there's, it, it's dense. Not only in the imagery, John is also a master of the Old Testament, so he is just weaving in as he goes along all this Old Testament stuff. It reaches backward, it reaches forward, and... Let me just say, I mentioned it in Bible class. I want to say it here. The beginning of chapter 11, you have this vision of uh, the temple. And uh, there's all this measuring and all these days. And with all of the, the whole situation with, with Israel these days, man, everyone's an expert on Bible prophecy. And, and you know, there's all this talk. <laughs> Clearly, obviously, what is happening over in the Middle East and, and even the world over, you know, you got Gog and Magog, that's obviously Russia and Iran, or is it Russia and China? Well, anyway, obviously, we're, we're living in the days of the fulfillment of prophecy. We're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. To which I say, really? That what John saw here in the Revelation wasn't intended for the first century church? I mean, chapters 2 and 3. 
are written, it's for seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. It had to mean something to them. And as I said in Bible class, so now I say also, it does not mean that just because there was a fulfillment historically that took place, and I do believe that, and that's for another time to unpack in fullness, but that just because there was fulfillment historically for the early church does not mean that there is nothing in here for us in terms of principles that can be distilled and that then are applied to us today. But what people want to do is they want to skip right past the fulfillment that it would have had and what it would have meant for the original audience and skip right to today and see, obviously. No, not obviously. And, And people need to do better homework when it comes to prophecy and prophetic literature. I'm after chapter 11. We read at the beginning of our sermon, verses 15 through 19. The seventh trumpet is finally blown. Loud voices in heaven start crying out. They start shouting, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Notice this. Our Lord... And, and here, being applied to our Father, God the Father, and of His Christ, there's not two rival kingdoms here between the Father and the Son. It's one kingdom, the Father entrusting all things to the Son, and the Son saying, what belongs to the Father belongs to me. Okay? And then notice, John, thoroughly Trinitarian in his view of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet, notice the end of verse 15, and He shall reign forever and ever. Who? God. John does this time and again. Um, back in, in chapter 6 of Revelation, the people are um, fleeing. For, uh, the sixth seal's been opened, and, and they're fleeing from the judgment. They're, they're trying to hide in caves and the rocks and the mountains. And one of the things they say at the end of chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, they say, fall on us to the mountains, on the rocks that they're hiding under. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the Lamb for the day of their wrath. Whose wrath? Father and the Son has come and who can stand? God's wrath was come. And here it is again. God brings judgment. Once again, you have a a discussion about the wrath of God in verse 18, which is uh, rich with Old Testament connection to Psalm 2. He shall reign forever and ever. This is a connection to Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. I have one like the Son of Man. He approaches the Ancient of Days. And he's given kingdom. Here it is again. The kingdom of the, of, the, of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. Twenty-four elders who sit on the throne, on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worship God. You get the idea that worship is a key thing that happens in heaven. Heaven is a place of worship. But notice their worship, how it begins, saying, We give thanks to you. And what is it they're thanking God about? He's so loving. He's so kind. 
We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Where's the part about He is to come? He came is the thing. And, and when He comes, by the way, He comes in judgment. He does this historically among nations, judging nations in time, sometimes even judging individuals in time and handing them over to the consequences of their sins with a view that there's still a final coming at the end when there's the great white throne judgment and all that. Okay? It's not to the exclusion of that. It's, it's and both. Okay? But we give thanks who is and who was, for you have taken your great power. Notice that. It's not that it, you know, it, it, we'll just hand it over. Our God is a warrior. Yahweh is a man of war, says Exodus 15. And when the nations get a little too big for their britches, that's when God comes. And he shows up and he says, let me show you who really reigns and who really has the kingdom here. You've taken your great power. You've begun to reign. That is, you began to exercise your kingly power among the nations. Notice verse 18, the nations raged. Again, this, this is directly pulled from Psalm 2. About how the nations raged, the peoples plotted in vain against you and against your anointed. So they raged, but guess what happened? Your wrath came. Ah, oh, there it is. Who is, was, and is to come, he came. His wrath showed up. Can I just say, thanksgiving. Heaven is a place of thanksgiving, and in heaven they thank Him for, ready, His wrath. They do. They do. And, and when, sometimes I think we have too low a, a view of God's wrath. And, and admittedly, there, there are times when it just, it's beyond our comprehension, our finite comprehension. But there are movements afoot that want to minimize or marginalize or even eliminate and erase entirely, if they can, the wrath of God from the pages of Scripture. But it's a very real thing. And listen, these first century Christians, they're being told, you're about to head, you're marching right into the teeth of persecution, and it will be intense, and people are going to die and shed their blood, and it's going to be awful, and it's going to look like the bad guys are winning. And many of your brothers and sisters will face a martyr's death. And it's going to look like the kingdom of this world is winning. And God will permit it for only so long. How long the martyrs under the altar are crying out in chapter 6? How long? Isn't that the question we ask sometimes too? And God says there's a full number. It hasn't reached the number yet. But when it does, it won't be a, se a, a day, an hour, a second too late. It won't be more or less. Once, the, once God's purpose and His will has been done, that's, here we go. And here comes the judgment. And here comes the wrath of God upon the nations that rage against Him. What do you think they're raging against? We don't want, let's, let's burst his bonds. Let's break all this. We don't want him as God. We don't want his Christ. 
And if that is the position, all that remains is wrath. Chapter 11, it's fascinating. There's no battle, right? There's no struggle where, where God's like, this thing's really in the balance, and it could go one way, it could go the other way. God, he's trying just as hard as he can, but boy, that, that, those, those uh, uh, wascally humans are just getting in the way. What do they say? You've taken your power. It was easy. And his wrath came, and they thanked him for it. Game over. In other words, they prayed, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, and it came, and we thank you. We thank you. What does it look like when God's kingdom comes and His will is done? Here, it was wrath, and they thanked Him for it. Jim McGuigan wrote a book with that title, Celebrating the Wrath of God. Can you do that? You know, one of the marks of maturity is the ability to thank God for those attributes which we don't fully comprehend. And, and to human sensibilities, and especially to the unsanctified, unsanctified mind, are, well, they're, for them it's unbecoming. But for us, the God who is holy, 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 again, in heaven they thank Him. Psalm 2 concludes with, kiss the sun. Be wise, O kings. Be wise, O nations. The wisest thing you can do is acknowledge King Jesus. To acknowledge His kingdom. It is God's will and His purpose that is being worked out in all of human history. And part of what that looks like is bringing all of Christ's enemies under His feet. Bringing them into submission. Making them His footstool. Now we're getting into Psalm 110 here. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's what happens here in Revelation 11, and in heaven they thank Him. <laughs> I've said before that God is continuing to bring all of Christ's enemies, making them His footstool. He must reign until all of His enemies are brought into subjection. The last enemy is death. This is 1 Corinthians 15. The means that God uses, in other words, the ways in which He accomplishes this, that's for Him to choose. He does as He pleases in this world. And sometimes, yes, those means are beyond our comprehension. But let us not be people who would be so foolish as to question the all and only wise God in the means that He chooses to do that. Yes, there are wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, kingdom against kingdoms. And you do have all the geopolitical machinations that are coming to the fore in this world. But I say to you, just as they say in heaven, salvation belongs to our God. And he, 
He has taken His power and He is reigning right now. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I don't know exactly what's going to happen when it comes to all the geopolitical stuff, but I do know this, that all of Christ's enemies will be made His footstool. He does that by judging nations, but He also does that through the announcement of the gospel, the ordinary means of sharing the Word of God with others. He does it through the the prayers of the saints. And so that would be my exhortation to you. You know, one of the things we we saw in Bible class, and I want to reiterate here, is when God's judgment showed up in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., two things the Christians were to do. Number one, run. Don't don't stick around, right? And, And historically we know the Christians did that. They got out of Jerusalem. Second thing they were to do was bear witness. Bear witness. We can get caught up in all of the, the politics and the, you know, the, the hand-wringing, what's going to happen, and doomsday clock's ticking. And the reality is we need to faithfully bear witness. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ has ascended to the Father's right hand. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Our message is a simple one, and yet this is also the means whereby God brings those who were enemies of Christ into submission. As they hear the gospel of salvation and Their hearts are changed, the heart of stone taken out, the heart of flesh put in. As they hear the sweetness of the grace of God, and they themselves bow the knee to King Jesus, this is how the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our God as well. Through the faithful prayers of the saints, what are we praying for? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Again, in heaven, they they thank Him. So also should we, brothers and sisters. You see, part of this also is that it is through His judgments upon the earth that God saves His people. We've got a whole Bible full of these examples. The Exodus. He passes judgment on Pharaoh, the Egyptians, their gods, in order to save His people. To His glory, by the way. He's glorified in that. God passing judgment on the Assyrians and the Babylonians in order to deliver His people from exile and bring them into the land. And He's worshipped and glorified for that. Hmm. What do you think is happening on the cross? The judgment, the wrath of God for our sins is being visited upon the Son. And the wrath of God for our sins is exhausted in the Son of God on the cross. But God no longer looks upon us with wrath. Instead, He saves us. And we glorify Him. We thank Him for that. Yes, in the cross, God's wrath is seen as well as His salvation. You need both of those. 
in order to have a proper and a full-orb perspective on what God does in this world. In heaven they thank Him. So also should we. We have such great cause for thanking God. We're no longer under His wrath. He saved us from our sin. And so we glorify Him and we thank Him. Let us pray. As we sang a few moments ago, as we see them singing in heaven, for all that you've done, we thank you. For all that you're going to do. For all that you've promised. For all that you are. That's what's carried us through. So we thank you, Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Holy Spirit. Our hearts are often tempted to fear. But we say, come Lord Jesus. Glory to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, now and forever and to the day of eternity. We pray. Amen.